Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's podcast focuses on the work of the International Justice Resource Centre here in San Francisco, California. The centre supports human rights advocacy through litigation support and online resource hub and trainings. The centre also has special consultative status with the United Nations Economic and Social Council. On May 13, 2016, the centre submitted an amicus brief to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in IV versus Bolivia concerning IV's forced sterilisation directly after a caesarean against her prior informed consent. Forced sterilisation has been addressed by various human rights bodies, but unfortunately has thus far been analysed nearly in a fractured manner, with different bodies viewing forced sterilisation as a violation of a disparate set of rights. In this case of first impression, the International Justice Resource Centre is arguing for a new conceptual understanding of forced sterilisation as an autonomous, complex violation of a core set of interrelated human rights as well as asking for positive measures, including the training of medical professionals in order to prevent forced sterilization from occurring. This case is pivotal at a time when forced sterilization, particularly of women and transgender persons, is still occurring around the world. With me today to discuss this issue and more is Lisa Reinsberg, the Executive Director of the International Justice Resource Center. Before founding the International Justice Resource Center, Lisa was an attorney with Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts and a Romulo Gallegos Fellow at the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, where she worked on complaints of torture, extrajudicial executions, and violations of criminal due process. Earlier, she represented people seeking asylum in the United States at the Cabrini Center for Immigrant Legal Assistance. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to Gravity. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. So... Let's start with a little bit about what the center does. Absolutely. So the International Justice Resource Center, or IJRC, uh, we're a human rights organization based in San Francisco, but we have a global mission, and that is to help both victims of human rights abuses and human rights advocates better use or more effectively use international human rights protections. So helping them understand what their rights are under international law and how they can go about trying to enforce them through the various human rights courts and monitoring bodies that exist. And and as part of that, you submit amicus briefs and help in uh, human rights advocacy? Yeah, we have three main program areas. Uh, One is our online resource hub, and that is where we uh, publish and collect information and guidance on international human rights law, the substance of it, uh, and the workings of the different human rights courts and monitoring bodies, so that in one place people can uh, more easily understand what this human rights framework is all about and how it can be of use to them. We also do, as you mentioned, provide advocacy support or technical support to advocates and to individuals who are trying to use these different systems, whether that's through litigation or other forms of advocacy. And for us, that does include amicus briefs and things like that. And then we also provide trainings. Can you tell me a little bit more about the trainings that you provide? Sure. So uh, those target the staff of other NGOs for the most part. And usually they are people who are already engaged in civil rights or social justice work, but don't have familiarity with the international human rights framework. So we train them on 
you know, what this is all about, <laughs> what's relevant to them, what they can be using uh, as complementary tools to their ongoing work. Uh, for example, we are currently planning a training for here in San Francisco later the, in the year, in September, that will be on the human rights of migrants. And I suppose people can go on your website and um, apply to <laughs> go to the training. Yeah, actually, um, you would you would think so. We don't actually have the information up yet, but it will okay. be up shortly. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, it's a very straightforward um, kind of registration process once that's up. Yeah, I saw on your website before you were referring to having information on your website. That's the resource hub, and you have a very very good outline of uh, refugee rights. Uh, and I believe several newspapers have quoted you on it and um, in the past, particularly with the current uh, refugee crisis going on. But just moving to uh, the amicus brief work that you do now, um, what are some recent amicus briefs that the centre has submitted? Well, one that we just submitted last week, um, <laughs> finally, was in the case of forced sterilization in Bolivia. Uh, before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Uh, so that's one that we've been working on for a while and um, and just submitted. So this was, uh, I think, IV versus Bolivia. And mm -hmm. was this, th this concerned a woman that was sterilized during a C-section? Is that correct? Yeah. So while she was still, you know, in the labor and delivery room, um, just after having undergone a C-section, she was sterilized really without her informed consent. Um, she did not want to be sterilized. She had wanted to have more children. And it ended up having a very long-lasting and negative impact on her life, uh, the lives of her daughters, of her kind of entire nuclear family. And so she, you know, felt strongly enough about what had happened to her that she's been pursuing justice in her case for all these years, um, since 2001. And so her complaint is now finally before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And it's the first time that either the Inter-American Court or Commission uh, will issue a, a decision on the merits um, about a forced sterilization case. And so we thought it was important to get involved, not only because this was an issue of first impression uh, in the regional human rights system, but because it continues to be a surprisingly prevalent problem, not only in our own region, but throughout the world. Right. There's several European countries that still force transgender persons that want to change their sex to undergo uh, forced sterilization. In Africa, there's several countries that forced sterilization upon women living with HIV, not um, understanding that uh, women with retroviral medications um, have a very, very, very low percentage of um, infecting fetuses. Um, and I think they're actually forced by uh, doctors preventing them uh, access to um, retroviral drugs. And then, of course, in the United States, uh, we've had a terrible history of forced sterilization. I think in California, they were forcibly sterilizing prisoners even up to 2010, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that it was legal in this state until 1979 with 20,000 people 
sterilized uh, from 1909 until 1979. I mean, mm-hmm. it's quite it's quite shocking that it, it's actually quite recent history. Uh, mm-hmm. also, also in the 70s, um, 25% I was reading to up to 25 to 50% of Native American women were sterilized between 1970 and 76 in this country. I don't think, I mean, there's <laughs> there's not much uh, media press about it or more reparations mm-hmm. um, about the forced sterilization, but it, and it's yeah. Also, yeah, it's it's quite so. So I think this case is not only would be pivotal for Bolivia, but also for the entire region. And we might see mm-hmm. more cases coming up. Uh, for instance, what happened in the U.S. to prisoners or Native American women, or um, or it, it seems disproportionately uh, poor Black women were affected as mm-hmm. well. Um, and in Peru, in right. Peru and. Uh, many many other states. Now, just just going back to your amicus brief, um, I was reading that you would like to constitute a single transversal violation of rights, an autonomous violation, um, and uh, you have listed the right to dignity, privacy, family life, personal integrity, humane treatment, freedom of expression protection of the family and the right to be free from discrimination and acts of violence. Now, that would encapsulate a whole bunch of rights um, that forced sterilization um, violates. Now, now how, would, how would the system change by understanding forced sterilization as uh, a single autonomous right rather than, you know, a set of diverse uh, violations? Yeah, so that's that's a great question, and we actually worked on this amicus brief with the International Human Rights Clinic at Santa Clara Law School here in California. So this was a concept that we worked on um, with them, and the idea is that you know you've seen or we've seen as a society this um, treatment of forced sterilization um, on a very kind of piecemeal basis, where a human rights body will look at an alleged uh, forced sterilization as a, a very specific type of violation just based on what their mandate is as a body. So, for example, if it's a UN human rights treaty body that is focused on the rights of women um, or the right specifically of women to be free from discrimination, they'll look at it just as a violation of that right. And you see that very kind of piecemeal approach taken by human rights bodies, and it paints an incomplete picture of the impact of forced sterilization on women's enjoyment of human rights. So we proposed that the Inter-American Court should take a different approach, similar to what it has done in cases of forced sterilization, where the starting point is not, well, let's break this down and look um, piece by piece whether in this particular instance there was a violation of the right to be free from um, inhuman treatment and sort of take as the starting point an assumption that if a forced sterilization did occur, it necessarily violates all of these rights. So the idea um, is to sort of better recognize in international human rights law um, what the real impact is and the full nature, basically, of this violation. And and it disproportionately affects women for sterilization. Absolutely. Yeah, and and it disproportionately affects women that are in labor and uh, either in tremendous pain 
or under sedation. So, mm-hmm. so, so they're not able to give informed consent. And I think one of, one of the things I really liked about your amicus brief was not only did you talk about the analysis of the law, but what needs to be done from a positive approach to effectuate the law that even if uh, this autonomous approach was uh, accepted by the court, but if doctors are not trained in human rights procedures and what informed consent is, that it would be moot. So if you could just explicate a little more on uh, um, your reparations argument. Sure. So the training component was one that we thought was absolutely essential and hadn't really been addressed so far in the proceedings in this case. Um, and as you have been saying with regard to um, the case generally, that it has relevance outside of this particular instance and outside of Bolivia, we feel the same way about this idea of training being necessary. And, you know, you've seen um, various human rights bodies, various UN agencies, the WHO, say that training, of course, of medical personnel in particular, uh, in respecting the need for informed consent, in respecting women's human rights in particular, is an essential component of their being able to provide care that meets human rights standards. And for us, it was particularly shocking (laughs) to see uh, in this case of IV, in the testimony before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights just a couple weeks ago, the doctor who performed the forced sterilization on IV really had no regrets and no (laughs) concept of um, how he should have done things differently or that performing this procedure without giving her an opportunity to think about it, to know the risks, to know the alternatives, was a real violation, that it undermined her dignity and um, it wasn't even medically necessary. Uh, So that sort of underscored for us the need for very specific and targeted training of medical personnel on these concepts. Otherwise, you know, the court could issue a judgment and Bolivia could say, for the degrees, but if that doesn't trickle down to the people who are actually performing these procedures, then it's not going to have the necessary impact. Why did he sterilize her? What was his opinion and why does he have no regrets? Well, um, as I think happens in many of these cases, there was, or for IV, a potential uh, risk if she were to become pregnant in the future. It was not any sort of immediate or life-threatening risk, but there was a possibility that if she carried out a future pregnancy, it might have complications. And so he thought he would just take care of that for her. Even though there's several physical, aside from the psychological factors, but physical risks from performing uh, both tubal ligations, and I believe that's what she had, or, or hysterectomies. And, and I believe that IV actually did have physical complications from the sterilization. Is that correct? Yes, she's, she's required you know, additional medical treatment because of those physical consequences um, of, of the surgery. Yeah. And sometimes forced sterilization has, uh, it, instead of doctors, you know, believing that it's got a medical reason, it seems that they also are very paternalistic and maybe think uh, there's been cases where women, particularly poor Indigenous women that have multiple children, they think it's a very useful contraceptive 
uh, for mm-hmm. them, which is uh, quite a heinous <laughs> opinion to um, to have. And and what we're really talking about is somebody that's meant to care for for the mm-hmm. patient, to uh, a patient that's extremely vulnerable, um, if under sedation or not. I mean, the the pain of late. I mean, I don't see how you could talk to someone about risks and benefits at that time. You would think that they would approach it before somebody is in labor um, in order not to have an extremely vulnerable uh, mm-hmm. patient. Um, Absolutely. And, um, you know, medical experts have recognized widely that um, sterilization is never a medical necessity or emergency. When these kinds of procedures are performed, it's never in response to um, or a solution to a, an immediate risk. And so that can never be uh, a justification. And I think there very much is um, that paternalistic attitude that you're mentioning. Um, One of the other doctors in this case testified before the Inter-American Court with an analogy along the lines of, you know, I can tell you not to eat junk food, but I don't know that you'll listen. So it's better for me to just take away that option for you. Oh, Wow. <laughs> I, I yeah. don't think I even have anything to say to that. <laughs> um, I, I'm a little flabbergasted. But yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, it disproportionately affects uh, women that are in a vulnerable position and uh, poor and indigenous women. In, so this population control, this old eugenics argument, it's, um, I mean, it's an extremely uh, racist and sexist argument, and we're talking about um, a severe violation. It's it's irrevocable. It's it's mm-hmm. not only it's taking away, well, it's taking away a part of being a woman, the ability to have children, and um, it, it for somebody to. And and what's interesting is that a lot of these countries that it's, that are forcing sterilization don't actually provide good access to contraceptives. As if they're forcing women into um, sterilization, as as if that's the country policy. So how prevalent is forced sterilization in the Americas? You know, I think there are some very um, sort of notorious and widespread examples, um, like Peru that you've mentioned, where there are many victims over um, a short period of time. I think in other places, it's not as well documented or um, it's not carried out with such regularity that you see that kind of big um, pattern. But it, it, it does remain a common enough occurrence that, you know, on a regular annual basis, there is new information about forced sterilizations in, in the Americas. Um, even in Bolivia, one of the documents that we referenced in our brief was a report that, you know, was not very old at all, just a couple years old, uh, that was talking about a pretty high incidence of forced sterilization that specifically targeted transgender people um, and women living with HIV, which are some of the communities that you've mentioned as well. So it it seems like the trend um, is, as I think has been the case in the past, targeting um, groups of women who are already particularly vulnerable or or marginalized. And perhaps because of that, it's not as well known as it could otherwise be. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was flabbergasted to uh, find out that Sweden <laughs> had forced sterilization um, for transgender mm -hmm. persons that wanted to change their sex um, up until like December 2013. So it's not just uh, limited to the Americas. Going back to Peru, because uh, this, this happened on President Fujimori, and actually his daughter might be uh, the next <laughs> president. So it's kind of... Um, Interesting to look at this. I was saying that in 2002, Peru's health ministry estimated that 260,874 women had been uh, forcibly sterilized between 96 and 2000, and that the doctor, uh, the doctors were given quotas by the government. Now, um, Fujimori, the, the current Fujimori, says that uh, this has nothing to do, you know, with her father or with the government, but with rogue doctors, which is actually quite interesting going back to your point in your amicus brief that not only should the government be vigilant, but that we need training of doctors because if doctors were trained, they wouldn't follow in these quotas, right? Um, and, and then the ones on the ground too, uh, dealing with patients. Absolutely, yeah. They they are the ones making these decisions, and if they're not properly informed um, of what their obligations are, uh, then there's not much hope for change. Now, going back to seeing um, this right as an autonomous complex violation of a core set of interrelated human rights, with, paraphrasing from um, your brief, um, the court has already done that, though, right? The court did that with disappearances because it was such mm -hmm. um, a, a prevalent, <laughs> unfortunately, um, event in um, South America's history uh, in the 20th century. So how, how did the court do that with disappearances? And is it likely that it will do that again with uh, forced sterilization? Well, we are hopeful that it would uh, take a similar approach. And um, part of the rationale or the parallels between the two situations is that at the time that the court was first receiving and deciding cases involving forced disappearances, there wasn't an inter-American or a regional um, convention or instrument that dealt with that particular type of violation. So if they didn't come up with this more holistic approach, they would have been looking at forced sterilization um, in a much more limited and narrow way of, you know, article by article, when that wasn't really adequate uh, to address this phenomenon, which was, as you mentioned, um, alarmingly common um, in the region at that time or at the time of those um, violations. And what we would love to see here um, would have been, or in an ideal world, a, a regional human rights treaty or instrument that specifically deals with forced sterilization and lays out the ways in which um, it is a human rights violation, similar to what you see with gender-based violence or other um, types of violations that um, have multiple effects. But we don't have that. So we think that the next best thing is this more holistic uh, approach. All right, and it's, and it's also a war crime under the Rome Statute. I believe that um, it's necessary to, to have this autonomous approach and hopefully the Inter-American Court of Human Rights will accept it and I believe that it will um, spread to other uh, regional systems. Um, now, just uh, moving on to uh, your work with uh, the UN and your special consultative status with ECOSOC, 
So we're getting a new Secretary General this year. <laughs> Usually the procedure has been uh, be- completely behind closed doors. And this year mm-hmm. we have a more open procedure. We have an event in New York and one coming up. We, we had an event in New York, one coming up in London, where um, the potential candidates with their uh, you know, public CVs can answer questions and they'll be uh, sub- answering questions from 193 member states as well as some representatives of civil society. So is this procedure really going to be more open, in your opinion? I think it's an improvement, and I think any movement towards increased transparency is for the better. I think it's certainly generated what seems like greater public interest in the process. There seems to be a lot of media coverage of um, of those dialogues and, um, you know, the accessibility of, of the process for the first time. Um, there's also speculation or talk that that increased um, transparency and scrutiny, perhaps, has led to a different uh, field of candidates than we might otherwise have had. So we may end up with our first woman secretary general, for example, and I don't know if you can directly tie those two things together, but it it does seem like um, the openness facilitates um, greater gender balance. Right. I think Helen Clark might be a potential candidate. She was the former prime minister of uh, Mm -hmm. New Zealand um, and currently heads uh, the UN Development Program. But um, so so the past few secretary generals that we've had seem to have come from non-European regions. Uh, and, and really non-Western European regions. And uh, it's, there seems to be an unwritten consensus that uh, the next Secretary General should be moved along the geographic sphere and come from Eastern Europe. And I've seen a lot of potential candidates from Eastern Europe. Do you think, that, including women, do you think that this, that this is something that's uh, viable, that we're going to see an Eastern European Secretary General? I think it's viable. I think, you know, that sort of practice of um, of geographic balance and diversity and, and you know rotation <laughs> is pretty common among intergovernmental um, bodies and, and including uh, human rights bodies and I you know in principle I think you know it has its benefits um, to have a different perspective I think it's more interesting to look at, at who the particular uh, candidates are and what their passionate about or what they, it seems like they might bring to the table. We're experiencing a lot of uh, pertinent world problems that the the new Secretary General will have to uh, address. Of course, climate change is one, um, refugees are another, and and they actually coincide with um, the increasing climate change. So, So in your opinion, what are the qualities that we're looking for in our new Secretary General? (laughs) <laughs> I think it's a lot it's a long list. Um yeah. you know, from from the perspective of a human rights advocate and organization, certainly um I think having those values of human rights ingrained um in the person is is going to be important. I don't think it's something that um a new secretary general could just decide that they care about once they take office. I, I think that already has to be something that is meaningful to them, um, respect for human rights, because it really goes across everything that the UN does and is responsible for. Um, 
I think it would be great as well to see um, an increased emphasis on transparency and accountability within the UN itself or for the actions of the UN when you see things like um, peacekeeper abuses and cholera in Haiti, um, situations that really affect a lot of people's lives and to which the UN should be uh, responsive and in a transparent way. Um, yeah, I think the overriding characteristic that that I would like to see in a secretary general um, is using their position of power to bring about good, um, to to really um, highlight human rights concerns, to keep that at the forefront, um, to use you know various statements that they're making on a daily basis almost to advance those causes. The UN does a lot of great things. It also has caused a lot of problems. For instance, in Haiti with cholera and uh, there was sexual abuse of children there as well by Nitsa, but they claim diplomatic immunity. So would you like to see the new Secretary General accept more responsibility on behalf of the UN? Yes, I think that um, would be an important step, definitely. I mean, there are certainly advocates and organizations who are much more involved and, and well-versed in the situation than I am or than IGRC is. Um, the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, for example, has been leading this advocacy around accountability for cholera, but I feel confident that that would be a welcome step um, for them if there were increased accountability and, and not just rhetorically, but you know, meaningfully for the people of Haiti. Yes, I, I would agree. Uh, <laughs> We've done, unfortunately, a lot in Haiti, Republic of NGOs, as some people like to call it, that um, where a lot of organizations, um, non-Haitian organizations, have um, made a lot of money. Um, right. None of it has been going to um, Haiti that has quite a tragic history. But particularly Minutes' record in Haiti has not been stellar, let's just say, <laughs> to say the least there. Okay, so so we are looking for a new Secretary General that has a very strong prior record of human rights rather than just extolling the virtues of human rights. Um, exactly. <laughs> let's hope that we do get a new Secretary General from whatever region and whatever sex that would be able to not only talk about human rights, but enforce them uh, as much as they can around the world in the new role. Thank you so much, Lisa, for your time on Gravity today. I very much appreciate it. And we look forward to the results of your amicus brief. It's a very pertinent and important argument, both in analysing forced sterilisation as a single transversal violation of connected rights, as well as a positive approach in enforcing medical training of informed consent and patient communication to effectuate this right and prevent this heinous violation from occurring. I trust the Inter-American Court of Human Rights will likewise hold the same view. Well, I hope so. And thank you so much. It was really nice talking with you. Thank you so much, Lisa. Have a wonderful day. You too. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.